Welcome to University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrick. On this episode, I'll be talking with Emily Lena Jones, Associate Professor and Regents Lecturer in Archaeology at the University of New Mexico. She is the co-editor of a new book, Questioning Rebound, People and Environmental Change in the Proto-Historic and Early Historic Americas. But my first guest is Dr. Larry Lehman. As medical director for the University of New Mexico's Milagro program, he treats expectant mothers experiencing opioid use disorder. But he found that after being stabilized and giving birth, many patients resumed using opioids because of untreated post-traumatic stress disorder. He and his colleagues are launching a pilot study that combines trauma-focused therapy with doses of MDMA, also called ecstasy or molly, to see if this can help new mothers permanently overcome their drug dependency. Lehman says MDMA temporarily increases production of oxytocin, a hormone that promotes a sense of connectedness. You know, a very common situation that I've seen through the years, and it actually led to this study, is that we take care of someone during the pregnancy, we stabilize them during the pregnancy, they have their baby, we're all real happy, baby goes home with them, Um, you know, maybe I see them postpartum for a month or two, and then I don't see them again for another year or two, and then they come back and they're pregnant again. I'm like, well, what happened? You know, and, and they're like, well, I started, I started using again and it might be slow, but eventually you kind of figure out there's something going on and you learn, learn a little bit. And, you know, I learned that really this wasn't about, just about addiction. It was about the trauma and half of our clients have PTSD is at the root of a lot of the addiction was still there. So it's not at all surprising that they resumed use. What are some of the kinds of trauma that these patients that you see have? Um, many of the people are women that have had repetitive, um, you know, sexual abuse, which, you know, some occurs due to their, you know, the setting that they're growing up. The unfortunate thing that happens when you've had trauma, you tend to get more trauma. Um, the other thing is that we're dealing with, you know, a society where our response to opioid use disorder is one of um, criminalization and mass incarceration. Um, many of the people have had a life that, that involved them having to do things to get money, whether it's um, sometimes it's prostitution, sometimes it's, uh, you know, selling drugs, and that leads to being involved with the legal system. Sometimes that's led to things like losing a, a, a baby from a prior pregnancy. That's about as tra- traumatizing as you can get to be a, a mom and lose your baby. You and your colleagues are now launching a pilot study to see if a program that combines trauma-informed therapy with MDMA, which is also known as ecstasy or molly, can help these patients break the cycle of opioid addiction. Why, why this approach in particular? Right now, um, MDMA is it's actually very close, close but not quite there to being FDA approved uh, for PTSD. Studies have been completed for that approval. Um, I'm familiar with those studies. They're showing very dramatic results. They're showing that with a 12-week course of treatment, there about 70% of people are no longer meeting the criteria for PTSD. That's you know fairly phenomenal. Uh, those studies, not, they're not pregnant people. Those are but they're by and large people who've had moderate to severe PTSD, um, most of them for many, uh, many years. And so I got familiar with reading that and I was like, hmm, maybe this would be something to, to try. And the university supported me. I did a sabbatical that actually focused on um, psychedelic therapies for trauma and addiction and learned how to you know, do MDMA therapy, became a certified MDMA therapist and, and um, decided to come back to UNM and try to do this. 
you know, if this study is successful, then, you know, the next thing would be to move on to more of a multi-center study that's randomized. And that kind of study, we could probably get support from, you know, National Institute of Health, but these pilot studies are really essential to before anyone will actually support that. How will the participants be chosen? The criteria is going to be that they have opioid use disorder, they're on methadone or buprenorphine. We'll let them know about the study in the last half of pregnancy, but they won't actually be recruited till they're um, two to three months out. They need to meet the criteria for PTSD using a, you know, sort of the national gold standard, something called the CAP study, and they need to meet their criteria for opioid use disorder. You know, some of them will have, you know, polysubstance use and that they may use, you know, marijuana or alcohol. And we have certain criteria for how much of that is um, um, is acceptable. They can't use um, stimulants, methamphetamine, which will limit it for some people. The MDMA therapy start postpartum? Yeah, I always try to emphasize it. You know, we're, we're so used to like the drug being the whole therapy that, you know, if you have hypertension, you take this. But but here, you know, we, we use the term MDMA assisted therapy. Um, and the MDMA is really a way to assist the trauma therapy. And the way it works is that over 12 weeks, you have a series of visits, about nine visits. And some of those are preparatory before the MDMA session. Some are what we call integration that are after the sessions. Um, and then we actually have the MDMA session themselves, which happen roughly four weeks apart for three sessions. Why are opioids an attractive drug for people who are coping with trauma? And how does MDMA maybe counter that or address that? When we look at people that are using opioids, there's something that can be very soothing about the opioids for people. I mean, one of the worst prognostic signs if you first start using your opioids and you say something like, I felt like I was normal for the first time. And what you're doing, it's because they're feeling a certain level of numbness, a detachment that's happening from their trauma there. There's nothing really about MDMA in particular that's oriented towards opioid use disorder. Um, we're using it to treat the trauma. The theory behind the study, the hypothesis, is that if we treat the trauma, that the remission of opioid use will become less likely by having treated the trauma. We also have an exploratory um, outcome, which is to see how it affects the actual maternal infant bonding and attachment. When we look at the bigger picture of this, I'm interested in what's called the intergenerational transmission of trauma. You know, what we see in across the country and very much in our community here is generations of generations of opioid addiction dependence. And so we're, um, we're hoping that by improving the person's ability to bond with their child that will have better outcomes. So we're studying that as well. We'll have outcomes that are looking at maternal infant bonding and attachment. I can maybe, it may help, but I can share a little bit of how I think the MDMA therapy works. Um, you know, the way it happens is you, um, you don't just take the medicine without any preparation. We have, you know, a series of uh, meetings with a co-therapist. We usually use a co-therapist team, um, uh, usually uh, a man and a woman. Kind of. That's for some complex reasons. One of them is that sometimes you're dealing with childhood issues and it may be helpful to have somebody of each gender when some of those uh, come up. What happens when the person takes the MDMA? The things that have been triggering their PTSD, um, the fear, the whole pathway of you know, activation, it's just temporarily suspended there. I mean, you basically, the, the whole f- the fear pathways there, um, they're temporarily resolved. So 
people can process the trauma that's occurred. They can talk about it with a therapist. And your typical session is sort of mixed where they're kind of going in or we, we use blind, you know, use a mask where they have their eyes closed and music and they can close their eyes and go inner. And there are times where they'll kind of sit up, come out of that and they'll want to talk with us um, and they'll be processing the trauma, but they'll be processing things that they just can't process otherwise i mean the you know even thinking about them causes one of several things it can cause you know, like a hyperactivation this kind of fight or flight reaction or the other thing that the trauma causes is is what we call like a freezing a dissociation those are the common trauma reactions so those are suspended during this time and during this time they can then actually reprocess it and you know, the psychological term we use is kind of reframing they can look at that and kind of put it in a different context one thing I, I've seen is sometimes somebody was there because of like one trauma, but it wasn't an isolated trauma. They were there, for instance, due to an abusive you know, relationship. But over the period of the 12 week course, they'll sometimes, you know, commonly go back to childhood issues that'll happen. And the way this works is it's almost, it's very client patient directed. They bring up their trauma. You don't have to um, bring it up. If someone's had trauma, you uh, give them a medicine that will temporarily stop the trauma reaction and you put them in a room with two people that they've established trust with, they invariably will talk about the trauma themselves. So we don't have to do things like where we're you know, asking them to talk about their trauma or we're not doing the typical PTSD treatments of like prolonged exposure. We're just kind of giving them a pause from the fear and the trauma reactions. This is University Showcase on KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick, and I'm speaking with Dr. Larry Lehman, director of the Milagro program at UNM, where he treats expectant mothers experiencing opioid use disorder. He and his colleagues are starting a pilot program that combines trauma-focused therapy with doses of the psychedelic MDMA to treat underlying trauma that often causes their patients to resume using opioids after they've been stabilized. Can you talk about research generally around psychedelics and treatment of addiction and trauma and depression? Because it seems to be growing. Yes. So the as far as like the you know the national research that's the furthest along, MDMA I think is is actually the furthest along with the indication being PTSD, and we understand that there's going to be an application uh, likely to the FDA in the next year to um, see if that could be made a legal medicine that could be prescribed by physicians and uh, and others, and so. I'd say that's one of the ones that's the furthest along. Um, psilocybin, um, we've actually done studies here. One of my partners in this study, Dr. Ba, you know, was here. Actually, the three yeah, we talked last fall. Yeah. <laughs> that was with alcohol. And so that's a study of alcohol using psilocybin. Psilocybin is also being studied um, for tobacco addiction. This is actually one of, it's really the first study in this country of looking at MDMA for substance use disorders is one small study of alcohol in um, in England. And you might be going, well, why? Well, why weren't, why have people waited? Part of the issue is that, you know, as for studying, we tend to, you tend to do a little bit of what I'd call cherry picking, to be honest. You know, you, so you set up a study and I want to study PTSD, but I want to study pure PTSD. So I want to study PTSD in the people that don't have a substance use disorder. So like the study I participated in when I was in my sabbatical, the, the people were working with would be excluded because they had opioid use disorder. So now that there's enough evidence to support that it works for PTSD, you know, I think our, our study makes sense as sort of the next thing to look at and see, you know, can it have better outcomes for postpartum uh, people with opioid use? I do want 
to just emphasize something that, you know, it may sound attractive to people who are listening that, oh, I have trauma, you know, should I just go out in the street and then buy some MDMA, which is on the street, maybe known as ecstasy or molly. I, I would discourage that, you know, for two reasons. Um, one is what you buy on the street. They've done a lot of testing. Generally, it may or may not have MDMA, but most of it is contaminated, amphetamine with Ritalin and other things. The other is that the results are being seen in a context of therapy of having built up sort of trust. You know, I, I sometimes say a little bit jokingly, if, if all you had to do is take an MDMA pill and your trauma would go away, there wouldn't be any trauma left in England because England has a you know, mass use of MDMA during raves. And it, it just doesn't do that in that sort of way. So I would encourage people now, having said that, I know it's really frustrating because people, people read the studies, they would like to be treated. And we're, we're hoping that, you know, for PTSD, that by 2024, it'll be available. I don't know for opioid use disorder. I mean, at this point, we have to maintain sort of a you know balanced attitude. We'll see what the studies show. I'm not coming in saying this is going to work. I'm saying it, hypothetically, it makes a lot of sense. So we want to move towards this. I mean, we're, as we all know, we're, we're in terrible shape right now. I mean, we've had 100,000 deaths from opioids in the last year. It's increasing. Um, you know, there's increasing like contaminants. Um, you know, Trank, which is sort of a derivative of a tranquilizer is spreading. Yeah. And so we, we need to look at other alternatives. And so, I'm, you know, I'm glad that we're studying that. I think the psychedelic therapies, you know, are probably the most exciting um, treatments out there right now for addiction and trauma. When we talked last year, you mentioned there might be some legislation about that would allow broader study of psychedelics here in New Mexico. Did that pass? A more limited bill went through. What that proposed was to have a panel of, um, you know, people that are experts and people who are from the communities and to study it, to look at that, to really looking at a model sort of like Oregon or Colorado. Um, you know, and it made a thing like one committee, it didn't do the other through the other committees. And I believe that that group um, has a plan to resubmit it next year. And there was a lot of enthusiasm in the legislature and I say this is happening in other states, so I would think that, that that may happen. Is there anything else you want to add, Dr. Lehman? I didn't touch on. Yeah, you know what? A couple of things. I don't think I've still kind of really talked a little bit about how these medicines may actually work. In a lot of ways, when we look at addiction, um, it can be a disease of loss of connection, where people lose their connection with other people, their families, even their interconnection with their self. And so one thing that we're looking at and studying, and it's being studied also in the psilocybin studies, is the effect of these, these medications on connectedness. Some people have said actually that the opposite of addiction is actually connection, really. I mean, and so what we're doing is looking at those. Those are going to be some of the variables that we'll look at and have been shown to have potential value in other studies. The other is that people have like um, an experience that can be just very emotionally challenging, but like a breakthrough experience. So we're going to be measuring, we have like a challenging experiences, breakthrough experiences, even mystical experiences. So part of our goal is, is to see if this works, how does it work? And then the, the other, as I did mention, is that we're going to look at how does it affect the bonding. And um, one thing that we that we know is that, that having the trauma itself can make it harder to bond and have attachment with your, with your baby. So we're very interested in looking at that part as well. Okay, really interesting. Thank you, Dr. Lehman. That was Dr. Larry Lehman with the Milagro program discussing his pilot study to treat mothers experiencing opioid use disorder with trauma-focused therapy combined with doses of the psychedelic MDMA.
Find out more at KUNM.org at the University Showcase page. And now we turn to history. Emily Lena Jones is an associate professor and regents lecturer in archaeology at the University of New Mexico. She's the co-editor of a new book, Questioning Rebound, People and Environmental Change in the Proto-Historic and Early Historic Americas. She and co-author Jacob Fisher, professor of anthropology at California State University, Sacramento, explore the archaeological record of the Americas during the period immediately following European contact, a time when the human footprint on the land abruptly shifted. The book began when they both observed remains at archaeological sites of larger game animals like elk and deer that immediately post-dated European arrival on this continent. It was striking because both of us work in also as well in the time period that immediately predates European arrival. And those contexts tend to be they're not always, but they tend to be really deprived of large animals. We tend to mostly have small things, like especially bunnies, rabbits, in those contexts. I mean, there are always some larger animals, it's just that there aren't as many. The argument that's out there as to why in the what we would call the late prehistoric or the late prehispanic, depending on where you are, the argument as to why there are relatively few large animals there has to do with the idea of, of resource depression, that people were hunting a lot, so there were fewer large animals on the landscape. And this has been observed also all over the Americas, this kind of pattern. And again, it's not universal. There are exceptions to the rule. There are a lot of places where it looks like large animals were sustainably harvested, but there still were fewer than you might expect just because there were a lot of people around and a lot of people hunting. So both of us, I think, came across this pattern when we were looking at the late prehistoric or late prehispanic, looking at this particular pattern, and then noticed, oh, hey, it goes away almost immediately. And it's it's kind of surprising. So post-1492, mm-hmm. Columbus arrival, mm-hmm. Europeans come there's an uptick Mm -hmm. in large game animals and then it goes away. Yeah. So one thing that I should point out about this is that this uptick is not synchronous. It Mm. happens at different times in different places. And that makes sense if the arrival of colonizers is what's behind it because, in fact, colonizers arrived at different times in different places across the Americas. Um, So we see this happening relatively late in Northern California as opposed to in New Mexico where we see it happening relatively early. Um, And the pattern in New England, one of our contributors um, was working in in, uh, Southern New England and there, again, it seems to follow European arrival there, which is more in 17th century. Mm, Okay. And so we know that there were large environmental changes following European contact, but what you found is a bit more complex Mm -hmm. in all this. Can you say more about that? Yeah. I will say when I first got involved with this, I was like, oh, well, this must be reflecting um, mortality from introduced disease, um, indigenous mortality from introduced disease. Then I started looking into it more and I'm like, you know, I don't think that that's that can be the sole explanation of what's going on here. I mean, we know that diseases did come in and that there was a lot of indigenous mortality. But in New Mexico, it seems like the disease epidemics didn't have the same really catastrophic effect that they did in some other locations. And there are some other locations that uh, that different authors in the book talk about where it's the same kind of thing. 
And yet, at the same time, there were a lot of other changes to people's interactions with the environment. So in New Mexico, as well as in a lot of other places where the initial European colonizers were Spanish, we had reducción, um, you know, this attempt by the Spanish to move indigenous people, to concentrate them in one particular area. That was more or less successful um, from a Spanish point of view in different areas, but it would have an impact on the number of people that are out on the landscape in general, which in turn would have an impact on the animals and on the flora as well. I don't want to leave plants out of this because they're also an important part. I happen to study in animals, and so does my co-editor, Jacob Fisher. So there's a real emphasis on animals in the book. But we do have a couple contributions from people who study fire in the archaeological record. And so one of the things that they found in New Mexico and in California, we have two separate chapters, is that indigenous burning regimes also seem to have stopped or have been altered with European arrival. And how does this intersect or maybe contradict a longstanding idea about pristine environmental systems in North America and here in New Mexico. Yeah. So there was, you know, this is an idea that it's amazing that it still persists, even though we've known for a long time that it's not true, Um, that prior to Europeans arriving here, that, oh, yes, there, of course, there were indigenous people, but they lived more, uh, they had a minimal impact on the environment. And that we know is not true. People everywhere around the globe have an impact on the environment. The nature of that impact can be really, really different. So I want to highlight one area that we don't talk about in the book as much, just because we didn't have anybody to contribute on it, is the Pacific Northwest. But this is a good example because it's a place where indigenous people have been in place for a long time and have, you know, we know from the archaeological record that there's a really sustainable Uh, salmon fishery in that location. People have been able to sustainably harvest salmon for a long, long, long time. That's a very different kind of interaction with the environment than you see when you get commercial fisheries in the 20th and 21st centuries coming in, where it's not sustainable. Nonetheless, they're both impacts on the environment. You know, that pre-European system was absolutely not pristine, as in untouched. It was managed by people, um, people who knew quite a lot about what they were doing. And that's what we've found generally across the Americas, that there is this relationship that predates Europeans that's different, but it is nonetheless a relationship. It's a managed landscape, not one that's untouched. You're listening to University Showcase on KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick, and I'm speaking with Associate Professor Emily Lena Jones about her new book she co-edited called Questioning Rebound, People and Environmental Change in the Proto-Historic and Early Historic Americas. You write that after 1492, American landscapes did not return to a prior state, pristine or otherwise. Rather, they transformed into something else, something that had not been seen before or since. Yeah. What do you mean by that? So, you know, some of the comparisons that we have for this are in other locations. So I'm going to talk about a couple more contemporary examples um, with this one. Basically, the idea here is, you know, the problem with the word rebound is that it suggests we're going back to something like that animals, um, let's say elk, just as an example, that there's a natural equilibrium level that elk will be at if humans are not hunting them and that that had disappeared 
prior, you know, in the decades prior to European contact, and then it returned once there were fewer people hunting. That's the problem with the idea of rebound in my mind. Instead, what I think we're seeing here is the same kind of thing that we see in other abandoned landscapes. And I don't want to use the word or rather, I'm using the word abandoned very carefully here in that it's not a perfect analogy because these environments were never abandoned. They just have fewer people on them than they did before. So in that sense, it's not terribly different than the area around Chernobyl immediately after that disaster and the and the way in which the landscape there has rebounded. Again, it's hard to get away from the word, right? Um, but there are a lot of animals living there. There are a lot of plants living there that were not living there before. So it's a very particular kind of environment. It wouldn't exist without that tragedy happening. It's also not the same as it would be if people had never been there at all. Mm-hmm. It's, it is reflecting the legacy of humans having been there. There are also examples of this in war zones that we know about historically in the North American West. Lewis and Clark, for instance, encountered some war zones as they moved west and were observing um, places where... Uh, different groups of people weren't going because there was a conflict between groups. Lewis and Clark walked right through it and they were like, wow, this is amazing. All these things growing everywhere. But that was really just an artifact of the fact that people weren't going there at that time for that particular reason. The animals and plants that they encountered were still reflecting the fact that people had interacted with them before and were around. They just weren't there at that time. Why is it so important to understand this? especially as we're talking about the myths around the West and um, Manifest Destiny and all that that you've touched on. Oh, man, there are so many reasons why this is important, <laughs> but but just to name a couple. So one of them, right now, of course, we're facing the impacts of climate change and shifting climate and thinking about how are we as people going to exist in this world, you know, going forward? And so knowing the details of what happens when you take people out of a landscape, as well as when people interact with it differently, I think is really critical to planning how we're going to manage human environment interactions going forward. It's all a choice. Um, I also think that there's a certain amount of wonder that comes for all of us who tend to live, many of us live in urban environments at this point. And so, for instance, in the first years after the pandemic, when people were seeing wildlife all over the place in places it hadn't been before, there was a lot of, wow, wonder. And in some ways, this probably isn't that different. We were, you know, in those years of the lockdown, those month, those first months of the lockdown, especially, but the years, um, we changed our behavior. Animals and plants changed their behavior. And it made us look at the world in a new way. Then I want to get to the manifest destiny thing as well. You know, there's another part of this that has to do with respecting indigenous knowledge about the environment and understanding that, in fact, those relationships were and are really deep. And there's a lot that those of us who are non-indigenous can learn from that. But at the same time, it's not about being one with nature, per se. It is a complex relationship between people and um, and the world around them. And too often, human environment interactions in the pre-European contact period have been used either to vilify into indigenous people, saying, oh, look, these people hunted. They had an impact on their environment. Or on the other hand, um, contribute to the noble savage myth. You know, so... I think what's important to understand here is that we're people 
our relationships with the environment are complicated. They are different culture to culture. They are different history to history. There are different ways we can look at this, but we always have that interaction. Well, Emily, this has been really interesting. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was Associate Professor and Regents Lecturer Emily Lena-Jones, co-editor of Questioning Rebound, People and Environmental Change in the Proto-Historic and Early Historic Americas. Thanks also to my other guest, Dr. Larry Lehman from the Milagro Program. You can find a link to this show and all our previous episodes at KUNM.org. Thanks to Associate Professor David Bashwinner for our theme music. And thank you for listening to University Showcase.